U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the XO, the Kristoff. Hey, buddy. Ahoy, Captain. Good to be here. So we are in the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. We are talking about the Battle of Flamborough Head. We had uh, just started it when we last week, and we're going to get into the actual shooty shooty pew pew oh, time. Exciting, man! You just you left it at right when we were going to begin, and we finally get to hear what happens. Right. Thank you for joining us. And now next week, no, I'm what? No, no. <laughs> so, are you ready to get underway? Oh, absolutely. Yes, sir. So when Commodore Jones and Captain Landis were fighting. A uh, separate battle, which was unexpected, the captains of the Paulouse and Vengeance, who were Cottonou and Recot, respectively, they were like, uh, guys, what do we do if they were in a formation that was really well organized? They might have been able to help out, but to intervene in a single ship-on-ship duel would be extremely dangerous. They could have taken advantage of the confusion to sail off after the stragglers in the convoy. But, you know, at this time, darkness has fallen. And until the moon came up to give them light, they wouldn't be able to see the convoy. And it actually became very clear quickly that the Boham Richard would need help. So they just waited until they found a a spot where they would be useful. Uh, at about this time, the uh, little schooner that had a uh, boarding party on it, they caught up. Now, there was no way to transfer the uh, boarding party to the Boham Richard or the Alliance. It was just not possible. But if they could have, that would have been very useful. <laughs> yeah. So Commodore Jones, he figured out real quick that his 18-pound cannons would not win in the gunfight. And so he quickly started the preparations he would needed to grapple and board the uh, boat he was fighting. Uh, Pearson and his crew, they spotted that this was happening and they adapted really quickly. They used their superior maneuverability of the Serpius to stay out of reach of their... Uh, hooks and you know continue to bombard the the boham richard all right there was a occasion according to the first lieutenant guy named richard dale no relation <laughs> that the boham richard's bow actually ran into the serpius's stern but neither side was able to take advantage of that situation uh it is reported that captain pearson asked a uh, question, quote, has your ship struck? Meaning, have they struck their colors? And uh, First Lieutenant Dale reports that Jones replied, quote, I have not yet begun to fight. There's that famous line. Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for this moment. Because then he begins to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, while that's happening, there were two or three broadsides exchanged with Alliance, and, and then less than 20 minutes after the first shot, uh, Captain Percy was very, very astonished to see that uh, his opponent move away to rejoin the Paulus. And, and the Paulus was still sitting there waiting for an opportunity to be useful in this fight. Landis had claimed later that his opponent had sailed away under cover of smoke. But uh, Percy and his ship were relatively unharmed and stayed out of range of any of the uh, four American vessels. And uh, then they s headed straight for the main battle to see if they could help out the Serpius. But because Jones was doing his boarding action, that means he was doing a close quarters uh, policy. And that, again, intervention would be completely stupid because uh shots fired by the countess at the richard could hit the 
Serpius, it probably would. I see. Just because they're so close together, and that makes sense. Right. And also, because they had massive 18-pound shots, they could accidentally hit the Countess as well. So Percy just gave the impression that he was going to intervene instead of, you know, actually intervening because he was trying to attract the attention of the Alliance and Paulus. Cotton knew, did see the uh, potential for danger, and so he quickly steered towards the Countess. And so Pierceley's, having seen that his ploy worked, slowly retreated, sailing with the wind. Like, I'm trying to visualize this battle, and there's a lot going on. Yes. There's uh, always a lot going on when you're doing shipboard actions. Well, I imagine so. So, I think you mentioned this last time. How many, what was the, I guess, not average, but the typical crew count for a ship like this, or the ships involved, was it in like the 30s or the 70s, or what What would you imagine? It depends on the ship and whether they are equipped for with Marines or boarding parties, things of that nature. So it could be anywhere for a small ship, like 30 guys, up to a few hundred. Whoa. Uh, it, it, a lot of it just depends on what they're equipped to do and the size of the boat. Okay. Uh, shortly afterwards, uh, John Paul Jones got the opportunity he wanted. And it was not uh, a moment too soon because his ship had been holed below the waterline and was starting to become sluggish and unresponsive. The uh, Separus's jib boom caught in the rigging of the Boham Richard uh, in the, in the mizzenmast. And Jones immediately led his crew in attaching the two ships together as strongly as they were able to. Pearson's like, oh, crap, this is not good. And he immediately drops anchor because both ships were still under sail. And uh, he was hoping that the when the Cerberus came to an abrupt halt, the Richard would keep going and rip the boats free. Now, Jones's men, when tying the boats together, had been very, very efficient. So what actually happened was that the Richard's motion was turned into a rotation, and the two ships, which were still attached, ended up side by side facing in opposite directions, yeah. their guns touching each other's hull planks. Wow. That's close. Yeah. And uh, even better for Jones is that the Separus's spar anchor caught in the woodwork of the Richard Stern, locking them even firmly together. That's wild. And then just to clarify, the Serapis is, it was taking on water the whole time, right? So it, that, it was sluggish and unresponsive, as you mentioned, correct? That would be the Boham Richard. Oh, the Boham Richard. Okay, sorry. I'm That's confused. the American ship. Okay, cool. Continue. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, Pearson's crew decided that they were going to fire broadsides straight into the Richard's hull. Dude. Tearing huge... Yeah, tearing huge holes into its side and doing a hell of a lot of damage to the gun decks. Uh, for Jones's part, if he was to succeed, he needed to drive all of the Royal Navy sailors from the Serapis's deck before his ship was destroyed underneath him. But he was well prepared for this, and his men at stations up the mast were equipped with both small arms and with incendiary grenades whoa that's that's handy to have <laughs> yeah uh and he also had three nine pound guns on the quarter deck that were still usable oh but one of them was on the wrong side so they unmounted it dragged it to the other side and remounted it nice they loaded two of these guns with uh, grape shot and the third was loaded with solid bar shot and they aim that one at the masts of the Serpius. So just for clarification on my part, and perhaps the listeners, I'll go ahead and jump on this grenade. Grape shot was basically very small uh, munitions that were meant primarily to either tear holes in sails or hurt the people on the ship, correct? Uh, not for sails. Okay. Just for people. Okay. Think of it 
Like a shotgun? Very, very, very large shotgun. I see. And then what was the other shot that you mentioned was loaded? The bar shot? The bar shot. Now, what is that? It is a uh, iron bar with uh, two cannonballs welded on each side. Oh. So kind of like a, like an old-timey dumbbell that you would see in the cartoons that would rotate around as you shot it, I imagined? I imagine that would... It sounds like like I'm familiar with chain shot, which would be similar, but a chain instead of a bar. And those would be devastating to masts, so I could see that. Yeah. It was similar to a chain shot. Okay. But instead of a chain, it's a solid bar. They use that for rigging and masts. Thank you for your explanation. Continue. You're welcome. So this brings us to uh, 2030. Uh, the moon is now up. And uh, the Polis and Countess Scarborough were downwind, moving slowly from the two anchored ships, now anchored ships. And they began a their own little battle, firing broadsides at each other. They were... Uh, that and also the the uh, so the vengeance and the little schooner with the boarding party that Jones really needed at this time are still even further out in the background, and uh, Captain Landis, who was of uh, commanding of the Alliance, was was looking at this and he formed a new plan and he went after Paulus on the way. They passed the uh, the two boats that were locked together and uh, <laughs> firing broadsides at each other. <laughs> the uh, They were now able to predict the direction of the shots. And he was able to safely approach the within firing range of Serpius from the bow or stern rather than the flank, which he did. And he fired a broadside, which included round shot, bar shot, and grape shot into the Serpice's bow. And unfortunately, where the Serpice's bow was, was the Richard's stern. So as much shot that hit uh, Pearson's men also hit Jones's men. And also, you know, metal uh, uh, Bits also flew along Richard's gun deck, which killed some of the remaining gunners and wrecking a number of gun carriages. And now that he thought he did a really good deed, Landis continued on his way. So after this uh, this broadside, Boham Richard now started losing the battle against the Serpius. But, I mean, they were still trying to make the situation too hot for the British, you know, both figuratively and literally. And just after 21.30, an hour later, they finally succeeded in a very spectacular fashion. According to Jones's logs, there was a grenade thrower, a guy named William Hamilton. And he ventured out onto a yard arm until he was able to look straight down on the deck of the Serpius and began trying to drop grenades. Not onto the deck, but down the hatches. Oh. One of these ignited a charge of gunpowder placed in readiness, uh, which was against safety practice. But Pearson had encouraged his men to fire briskly, so they threw safety out the window. Right. But there, there is a problem with this version of the story. And that's because the 18-pounders were on the lower deck. So it would have to be a very, very lucky drop for them to be reached. Uh, Pearson speculated that either a grenade had been thrown through a hole in the hull from Richard's gun deck, or that one of his own guys accidentally lit the charge. Yeah. By accident. So whether Jones is right or Pearson is right, the, the effect was still very devastating because the charge blew up and it scattered burning powder. Oh. Yeah, setting off charges that were sitting nearby. And this was a chain reaction, and it covered the entire rear half of the Serapis's lower gun deck. 
killing or severely burning many of the gunnery crew, actually forcing some of them to leap into the sea to extinguish themselves. You know, I'd always seen scenes like that in the movies where um, during this time, the Age of Sail, somebody catches on fire and they jump in the sea to extinguish themselves. And I thought, that's ludicrous. This is just for effect. And now I'm being corrected by history. So thank you for the education. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. They also did put five guns out of action with it. So there was some confusion with some of the guys climbing back on board after jumping into the sea to put themselves out. And some of them were almost mistaken for American borders. So almost almost a friendly fire incident. So Paulus and Countess are still engaged with each other and moving with the wind away from the, the, the huge cluster happening right there with the main boat with the main two boats and Alliance was catching up with them very quickly because they were pretty much undamaged very fast and well armed. Piercy knew that with seven of his own guns disabled, four of his crew were dead and he had 20 wounded and his riggings and sails badly damaged. He was not going to be able to win or escape. So with Landis just out of range, he struck his colors. Alliance did approach him to take the captain's formal surrender. But after, you know, Piercy and Cottonou had an exchange of words, Landis accepted that his colleague should take the surrender and attend to the casualties. And Alliance would return to the main battle. Now, the journey back would be against the wind. And that means it's going to take a while. Oh, yeah. So because nobody else was near this main battle, this bought Serpius a, a lot of time. Uh, the Boham Richards gun decks were now so very damaged that most of the British shots were just passing straight through without touching anything. Wow. And the guns on the Richard were pretty much silenced. There were a lot of fires to raging on the Serpius and the hold was filling with water because one of the pumps were, was destroyed. Uh, Commodore Jones was apparently exhausted and slumped on the chicken coop for a quick rest there. According to his memoirs, there was a rumor that went around that he was dead or dying and his gunner and carpenter were both wounded. So that the crew consulted with the master at arms, who was the next ranking officer. And they decided that a little before 2200 to strike their colors. The flag though had been shot away. So their only option at that point was to shout. Captain Pearson shouted back asking if they were actually surrendering. And uh, that was when Jones jumped up and was like, nope. I imagine the look of uh, disbelief and probably some disappointment on the Master of Arms is his face. It's like, okay, good. We're going to give up. We're going to stop fighting. It's going to all be good. Hey, we give up. And they're like, are you giving up? And then Jones comes out of nowhere. No. Well, his actual words, according to himself, after the battle was, quote, I have not yet thought of it, but I am determined to make you strike. Hmm. And yet, after hearing that, uh, presumably the officers realized he was still alive and returned to their duties. There was a more dramatic uh, version appearing in the newspapers after the battle where a crewman thought he had heard, quote, I may sink, but I'll be damned if I strike and then saw the captain himself using pistols to shoot the three officers who were attempting to surrender. Whoa. So there was a third version that uh, was pretty much what Jones said, but without the shootings. So, you know, it's, we're not going to know exactly what happened. But, you know, Pearson actually couldn't hear the answer anyway <laughs> because of all the noise. 
So he decided to send a boarding team. And at this point, Jones's preparations again paid off. And the boarders were met by a hidden defensive force and swiftly drove them back to the Serpius. By this time, the Serpius's main mast came down. Uh, ironically, the only reason it did not come down sooner was because it was leaning on the Richard's rigging. Oh. <laughs> so about, you know, 2215 Alliance returns. And Landis dis delivers another one of his quote-unquote helpful broadsides. And uh, in response, Jones's crew keeps yelling at him to stop. Uh, Jones attempted to send orders for Alliance to help with the boarding operation instead. Uh, the moon is now completely up. It is a full moon, so it is brightly illuminating the Serpius. And the Richard was clearly showing the lantern signals that of what Jones's orders are. But Landis, being Landis, decides his plan is better and stays with his plan. He sailed around to, quote, unquote, the safe sides of the two ships and aimed another broadside. And when he fired, hit, the theory was to hit the both the bow and the stern of the Serpius in a raking fire type of broadside. But in reality, the Richard was again holed below the waterline. All right. And it started sinking rapidly enough that the Master at Arms decided to release the prisoners of about a hundred or so men from previous battles, uh, and because they were locked up on the lower deck. Now they were not manacled, so they were completely free, and they could have helped Serpice's crew to overrun the. Richard, but Jones reacted quickly and successfully urged the prisoners to put all of their efforts into working the three remaining pumps to save their own lives. Wisely commanded. Yes, that's a great plan. Now, Captain Pearson did not have a full picture of what was happening on the Richard, and he was losing a lot of men from the broadsides from the Alliance and you know, his boat was not movable at all. So he was, saw that the Alliance, which was pretty much undamaged could keep firing at will. And he saw that pretty much every ship in the convoy that he was protecting had reached safety even before this battle began. So after that uh, second broadside from the Alliance, he decided that he was not able to achieve anything by continuing to fight. So not long after 2230, he called for quarter and struck his colors. He did it himself. He brought down his colors himself. So this gave the Americans the chance to board the Serpius. This did not go as simply as it should have gone. Three shots were fired by British sailors who had not gotten the message that they were done. Oh. And a guy named Midshipman John Myrant, who followed First Lieutenant Dale aboard, got a pike struck through his... That sounds really painful. Yes. The First Lieutenant of Pearson was reluctant to believe that his captain had actually surrendered. So Dale made sure that he stayed with Pearson rather than leaving him by himself. A little time later, Pearson was boarding the Boham Richard to hand over his ceremonial sword. And at that time, the main mass of the Serpius finally falls overboard. Good comic timing. You want that to fall over <laughs> right when you're handing over your ceremonial sword. Well, it, it probably happened because at this time there were efforts being made to separate the ships. Oh, right, and it was leaning on the other ship prior, so that makes sense. Yeah. But it also dragged the mizzen top mast with it. Oh. Yeah. So as the Boham Richard got underway, 
uh, First Lieutenant Dale attempted to follow it in the Serpius. And he learned two very important facts very quickly. First, the Serpius was dead in the water. And second, he had a very large splinter in his leg. And he realized he had a splinter in his leg when he fell over. So the first problem they fixed by cutting the anchor cable. The second problem was fixed by bringing First Lieutenant Dale back over to the Richard to be treated. So after that, they started putting small boats into the water and began to evacuate the Richard's crew. There was one or two boats that went missing during the night because uh, British crewmen took the opportunity to just go home. Yeah, it's right there. You might as well. Which is why there was eyewitness newspaper stories the next day. Now, uh, little known to the, uh, the sailors, they had actually, the battle had been observed. They were close enough to land, and the moon was so full and bright that there were thousands of people on shore. Oh, that's right. This was way before television. So this was as exciting as it got. Yeah, so they're, they're, they were able to be seen by the, uh, the high Yorkshire coastline and in Scarborough, which is north of Flamborough Head. Now, there is no record of a final casualty count aboard the two main combatants. Uh, Captain Pearson, in his log, stated that there were many more than 49 dead and 68 wounded aboard the Serapis. But he also figured that there were 300 casualties on the Richard. Whoa. But this this seems very, very high. Yeah. Unless, you know, it also included the captives that were stuck below decks during the battle. The British press reports claimed there were 70 deaths on the Richard. Which, if we assume a similar ratio to that of the Seraphis figures, would give about 100 wounded. So now that everything was done, the, they, they had to do uh, repairs and everything. So overnight, they continued pumping the Boham Richards hull. And they started to repair the, the hull. But, you know, the water was still getting deeper. They weren't able to keep up with the, this, the, the water coming in. Mm -hmm. So the first thing they tried to do was, the, was throw the guns on the lower decks overboard. They did this reluctantly, but easily, because much of the hole was missing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> They also did that with the KIAs. Mm. They, they, they did do that with much more dignity, though, than they did with the guns. I imagine so. Um, that's, a, that, that's a common way of burial. And they were gentlemen of sorts. Yes, at sea burial, the time of war is very common. Yeah. At around 1400 the next day, the ship's carpenter insisted that the ship could not be saved. So Jones took the former captain and former lieutenant of the Separatists to safety, but then went back to Richard in the early evening to check on the progress of the repairs. He saw that the water was still rising, and so he ordered the wounded, who really should not have been moved in the first place, but because of the situation, they moved them to the Serpius. Makes sense. I mean, this boat is sinking, and you're wounded and probably can't make your way off of the ship, so we're going to help you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pearson was not aware of this, and he wrote in his official report that Jones had left the wounded on board. So this, you know, does not help Jones's reputation. Well, uh, in some circles, in other circles, it probably improves his uh, ferocity. Well, he gets into legal trouble later. Oh, okay. It, yeah. Uh, at 2200, those who had been brought in from other ships to man the pumps were ordered to leave. And during the rest of the night, the most important items aboard were removed. 
This did not include personal positions, even of Jones's own. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the flotilla at this point is slowly moving east-southeast away from the coast this entire time and was not seen again from land when night fell. At about 0400, the pumping was done and they abandoned the boat because the water was almost up to the lower deck at this time. Yikes. The wind was also picking up. So at 1000... They abandoned ship. And an hour later, the Boham Richard disappeared beneath the waves. Now, this the, the Royal Navy had started sending ships their way. And the French had a semi-beneficial effect. Jones wanted to take his prizes to Dunkirk. But the French captains, because remember, these boats were commanded by... French. Ah, that's right. They insisted on following the original orders they had from their government. And that was to head for the island of Texel, which was in the United Provinces, which is the Netherlands. Oh, I see. Okay. So they arrived on October 3rd while the British ships searched for them in the wrong places because they ignored the estimate by the observers in Yorkshire of where they were going to head towards. So they're heading toward the Netherlands, or modern-day Netherlands, and Captain Pearson is still on board, correct? So, I mean, it's not that he could communicate to the other English ships, but after the fact, he would be able to say, no, 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 we were taken to the Netherlands, right? After the fact, yeah, okay. they'll, they'll know what happened, just like we know what happened. Right. right. Yeah, because it, he's a prisoner now. He's, you know, he'll be able to communicate with his people when they get the land and everything okay i'm just trying to make the the timeline make sense continue right uh once they get there jones immediately writes to his government official who was benjamin franklin and one thing that he covered was the conduct of captain landis he wrote very angrily quote I forbear to take any steps with him until I have the advice and approbation of your excellency. Captain Con Captain Cottonou, on, uh, on the other hand, placed himself under no such obligation and called Landis a coward to his face. Landis challenged him to a duel, during which Landis ran his sword through Cottonou's chest. Whoa. Just missing his heart. So when you say just missing his heart, does that imply that he survived being skewered or was it just not as instant of a death <laughs> um we can circle back to that if you'd like that just oof. no he survived whoa yeah he ended up passing away in 1808 that that's pretty awesome Whoever his doctor was uh, probably became a, a, a household name. He actually uh, died in Savannah, Georgia. Really? It's probably the humidity that got him. Uh, he did die of, quote, unquote, lingering illness. Mm-hmm. Yep. So while they were in port repairing their ships jones had to deal with the consequences of landing in a neutral port with prices of war he turns on his diplomatic charm and negotiated at the hague and networking in amsterdam where he was really the toast of society he was known as the terror of the english that's quite a title yeah on October 8th, the British ambassador, a guy named Sir Joseph York, he wrote to the guys in charge of the United Provinces and claimed under international law that Jones not be accredited by a recognized state. He was a rebel and a pirate. Therefore, that the two captured ships should be detained and handed back to their rightful owners. York also asked that the wounded from the two ships be taken ashore and be treated at the British government expense. The request was agreed to very quickly, 
So a fortnight later, which is two weeks mm-hmm. after the repair work was done, the Dutch said that their neutrality meant that they could not judge the legality of actions between foreigners on the open sea, but that it would it would not do anything if the British tried to retake the ships once they left the port. I see. They also said that Jones's squadron was obliged to leave as soon as possible and could not be supplied with arms or ammunition except what are absolutely necessary to carry with them safe to the first foreign port they came to. York replied to this by quoting treaties and calling him a pirate and pointing out that under Dutch laws, commoners of foreign naval forces were obliged to present authorization from their governments when docking in Dutch ports. And because the United Provinces did not officially recognize the American government, this was a very tricky legal point. And so the Dutch took a while to consider this. So one of the ways to get around the problem was that the Polaris and Vengeance were officially declared French. Ah. And and Captain Cottonou becomes Commodore of a French squadron. And his flagship was the captured Serapis. That's pretty sneaky. I mean, that's pretty good um, diplomatic wrangling or politicking. Yes. Yes. Now, Captain Landis, he is barred from command until the cowardice case against him could be heard. Wait a minute. Is that a... Did that bear legal weight if you were declared a coward? So can you... Yes. What does that mean? What were the consequences and repercussions of that? Uh execution really so it would be like um i believe so so when that gentleman was called a coward and then dueled and skewered that guy in the chest was he then did they lift all the charges of cowardice since he oh no okay no 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 he uh the duel happened because his honor was questioned i see that was a okay that was uh, extra legal not not necessarily part of the process no that was not part of the process at all that was personal (laughs) so jones becomes the captain of the american boat the alliance and is not associated in any way with the newly french squadron there were several royal navy ships waiting just off the coast for the day that he was supposed to leave and the dutch accord the dutch authorities made a show of trying to eject him. But, you know, this is just a show. So winter storms start approaching, and it makes it more difficult for the English ships to stay on station. So JPJ slips away among a group of Dutch ships on December 27th and sails to France. That guy's incredible. Yeah. Now, uh, back in England, there was unexpected things happening. On one hand, the overall effect of Jones's cruise and the activities of other raiders, such as the privateer duo, the Black Princess and the Black Prince, were reported with kind of a resentful admiration. And on the second hand, even though Pearson and Piercy had lost the battle, they were the only Royal Navy captains who were actually able to engage with Jones's squadron at all. And they had sunk his flagship. That is impressive. Yeah, their official reports appeared in the British newspapers in the middle of October, which forced the Americans to leak Jones's accounts. I'm glad to see that not much has changed in the in the realm of media either in the past 200, 300 years. Right? Now, more importantly, they had achieved their mission purpose, which was to protect the convoy. So when they returned home around the beginning of November, they were honored by the towns of Kingston upon Hull and in Scarborough. And they were rewarded by both the Russian company which was the principal owner of vessels in the convoy, and the Royal Exchange Assurance Company. Pearson was given a knighthood. Yes, there's a story associated with that, but I'll let you keep going. No, go ahead. 
So, uh, from what I understand, after this battle, I don't know a whole lot about John Paul Jones, but I do know that in this battle, he says, I have not yet begun to fight, and then his main opponent, Captain Pearson, was given a knighthood for uh, bravery against, basically, in the in the face of having to fight John Paul Jones. And then to which John Paul Jones replies, because he's such a baller, he says, should I have the good fortune to fall in with him again? I'll make a lord of him. <laughs> in 1780, to honor Pearson for his actions in protecting the convoy, he was presented with three coconut cups mounted in silver by the company Wakelin and Taylor. And in 1782, the Royal Navy took a unusual step of naming a new ship, the Serpius, which was rarely done by the Royal Navy after a boat has lost a battle. Usually, if you lose a battle, that name is dead. Yeah, that's bad juju. You don't want any of that. So, my friend, that is the Battle of Flamborough Head. Dang. That was as exciting as I knew it would be from last episode. Mm-hmm. So that is where we're going to end our recounting of the American Revolution for today. All right. So we are partnered with HeroCards.us. Uh, together with them, we honor one of our fallen angels at the end of our episodes. So today we are going to honor Brigadier General Thomas Roosevelt Jr. His hometown was Oyster Bay, New York. He served in the U.S. Army in the 4th Infantry Division. His honors include the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star, four of those, and the Legion of Merit, and also a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was July 12, 1944, Metuis, Normandy, France. He was 56. So he was born on September 13, 1887. He was born in a life of privilege and high expectations. Theodore Ted Roosevelt Jr., was the oldest son and namesake of the 26th president of the United States. Huh. From Sagamore Hill, the family estate in Oyster Bay, New York, the Roosevelts moved to the governor's mansion in Albany, New York, in 1898, and into the White House in Washington, D.C. in 1901. When Ted was 13 years old, he was the older brother to Alice, Kermit, Ethel, Archibald, and Quinton. Now, despite his famous heritage, Ted would have to build his own success. His larger-than-life father had been a sickly child and was a firm believer in the benefits of living a strenuous, vigorous life. And after attending both public and private schools, young Ted hoped to serve in the military and considered the military academy at West Point. His father preferred that Ted volunteer for military service if the need arose and instead attended Harvard University which was uh, the elder Roosevelt's alma mater. Ted chose Harvard and after graduation found success in baking and publishing. He still had a desire to serve in the military as his father had. During the Spanish-American War in 1898, Theodore Roosevelt, his dad, was a national hero as a lieutenant colonel commanding the Rough Riders Regiment which he led on a daring charge up San Juan Hill to help free Cuba from Spanish rule. He would later receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. In 1910, the younger Theodore married Eleanor Butler Alexander, with whom he would have four children, Grace Theodore IV, Cornelius, and Quinton II. So Ted's opportunity to fulfill his true desire for military service came in 1915 when he was among the first soldiers to volunteer as the United States entered World War I. He left his business career to join the Army at an officer training camp in Plattsburgh, New York. Both Ted and his younger brother, Archibald, were commissioned as officers in June of 1917. Ted was sent to France in 1917 and was shot in the leg in the decisive Battle of Sissonos and nearly lost his vision after being gassed. His courageous leadership on the battlefield would earn him a Distinguished Service Cross, a Distinguished Service Medal, 
and two silver star medals. By the end of the war, he was lieutenant colonel in command of the 26th Regiment, 1st Division. Returning home after the armistice of November 11, 1918, Ted was an instrumental in arranging meetings to plan what would become the American Legion, which is a patriotic organization of war veterans whose focus on service to veterans, service members, and communities. Now, as a war hero with proven leadership abilities in his own right, Ted attempted to follow his famous father's footsteps into politics. He was elected to the New York State Assembly in 1919, and in 1924 was the Republican nominee for New York governor. And he lost by just over three percentage points to Democrat Al Smith. President Warren G. Harding's administration appointed Ted as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1921. And he was appointed as governor to Puerto Rico in 1929 and governor general to the Philippines beginning in 1932. As the United States hesitated to directly enter World War II, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. returned to active duty in the Army in April of 1941, eight months before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which forced the Americans' official declaration of war. Ted, whose distant cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was now the President of the United States and would serve under General George S. Patton in the African theater and later be reassigned to the European theater. Now a Brigadier General, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was assigned to take Utah Beach as part of Operation Overlord, the largest amphibious invasion in military history. He was 56 years old and suffered from poor health requiring a cane because of arthritis and his World War I injuries. Ted was the oldest man and the highest-ranking officer to land on the beaches of Normandy in the D-Day invasion. His 4th Infantry Division landed in the first wave of the invasion on June 6, 1944, missing the target area by three miles. Ted was armed with only a cane and a pistol, and famously yelled, quote, We'll start the war from here, and he ordered an advance. He later wrote to his wife, quote, It steadies the young men to know that I am with them, plodding along with my king. According to the Britannica, quote, For an assault that had begun with such terrible confusion, the Utah Beach landings ended in a spectacular success beyond the most optimistic expectations. The 1800-meter error had placed the landing force away from the heavily defended area of Les Dunes de Veraville and into a less defended section of Beach. 20,000 troops and 1,700 motorized vehicles had landed at Utah with surprisingly few casualties, fewer than 300 men. Wow. Utah Beach had been taken in less than an hour. Five weeks after the successful D-Day operation at Utah Beach on July 12, 1944, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr.'s poor health caught up with him. He suffered a sudden heart attack and died at the age of 56 in Montus, Normandy, France. Adding to his military honors from World War I, Roosevelt would receive two more Silver Stars, a Legion of Merit Award, and the nation's highest military award, the Medal of Honor. His citation reads, The President of the United States of America, in the name of Congress, takes pride in presenting the Medal of Honors posthumously to Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., Army Serial Number 0-TAC-139726. United States Army, for gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on June 6, 1944, while serving as commander in the 4th Infantry Division in France, after two verbal requests to accompany the leading assault elements in the Normandy invasion had been denied. Brigadier General Roosevelt's written request for this mission was approved and he landed with the first wave of the forces assaulting the enemy-held beach. He reportedly led groups from the beach, over the seawall and established them in land. His valor, courage, and presence in the very front of the attack, as complete unconcern at being under heavy fire, inspired the troops to heights of enthusiasm and self-sacrifice. Although the enemy had the beach under constant direct fire, Brigadier General Roosevelt moved from one locality to another, rallying men around him, directed and personally led them against the enemy. Under a seasoned, precise calm and unfaltering leadership, assault troops reached beach strong points and rapidly moved inland with minimum casualties. He thus contributed substantially to the successful establishment of the beachhead in France. Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr. 
was laid to rest with his fellow soldiers at Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial in Colville, sur mer France. Plot D, row 28, grave 45. So, Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph. Take us out, please. Got it, Dale. I think I might get through this without messing up and everything. So let's see if I've jinxed myself. Uh, hey, thank you for listening, everybody. Number one, uh, it's always great to learn about history myself, but I know we get to share it with all of you and kind of learn together. I think it's a really cool community that we have. And if you want to get in touch with us or contact us, there's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, you can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also catch us on X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, at usnhistorypod. We will be there. Uh, if you want a more interactive venue, we're also on Discord. So uh, find the link to the Discord channel in the show notes. And uh, you can also find us on YouTube. And you can listen to us there. It's it's excellent there. It's excellent wherever you happen to be listening to it. So uh, speaking of excellent, go ahead and rate us on iTunes, YouTube, whatever uh, app you use to listen. And if you want to give us five stars, I won't complain. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time. And as always, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye, guys. See ya. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.